1: WTBN, Pinellas Park. Ours is a very strange age. Ours is an age that actually encourages mental adultery and, and behavior like no other era in the history of mankind. Obviously, lust and and mental adultery have been around since the fall of man, but there has never been a day like ours in which pornography is so accessible through videos, magazines, and the Internet. Technology is both
0: a blessing and a curse, isn't it? It enhances our ability to communicate the gospel, to live healthier and more productive lives, and also to destroy ourselves. The destruction can be as spectacular as a hydrogen bomb or as subtle as a fantasy and the latter has ruined more lives than the former. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Bible teacher Steve Kreloff, the pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, and we're discovering that as strict as the scribes and Pharisees were, Jesus said we are to have much higher standards. It's not just our external conformity to his standards that God demands. He looks right into our very thoughts, and they count for just as much as our actions. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, "You have heard that the ancients were told, 'You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court.' But I say to you," and then he went on to explain that hatred and anger are murder also. And now we come to verse 27 of Matthew 5. Warning, I don't think any of us can read these words of Jesus and walk away unaffected. He makes it crystal clear that we are desperately sinful and need drastic action. I invite you to follow in your Bible if you can now as Pastor Steve begins today's lesson.
1: In Matthew chapter 5, we want to look at the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 27 through 30. Here's what Jesus said, beginning in verse 27. He said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Bible has a great deal to say on the subject of moral purity and sex. Starting in Genesis with the statement to Adam and Eve about the two becoming one flesh, God continues throughout his word to instruct his people on proper sexual behavior. He's he's not silent on this subject. And the one message concerning moral purity that is consistently taught throughout the scripture is that sexual relations are uniquely reserved for a man and a woman who are married to each other. And anyone who violates the sanctity of the marriage act is guilty of adultery. The Lord couldn't have made this any clearer than when he spoke in the seventh of the Ten Commandments, which says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he reiterated this truth throughout the Bible. For example, there are many, many prohibitions found in Leviticus that forbid the Israelites from practicing the lewd sexual behavior found in the Canaanite culture. And that certainly included adultery, though it went even beyond that. Proverbs also a number of times addresses the subject of fidelity in marriage in the form of a of a wise father who's giving counsel to his son and, and warning his son not to be seduced by an, adu- an adulterous woman, but rather to enjoy his, his own wife. The Song of Solomon is an entire book, an Old Testament book devoted to teaching about the sexual pleasures that are reserved for a husband and a wife. And in the New Testament, there are many strong statements, a number of them that emphasize that sexual intimacy is confined to marriage. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Starting at verse 2, the Apostle Paul said... Now, he's writing back to the Corinthians. A very uh, they, they came out of a very pagan culture, a very immoral culture, and some of them were, were still uh, fooling around with that stuff. And Paul writes back to them and says, Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. He's talking about sexual responsibility. So when you get married, you have a responsibility to keep your sexual relations within the confines of marriage and only there, and you have a responsibility to do that. The wife, he says in verse 4, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he says, stop depriving one another. So there must have been something going on at Corinth where husbands and wives were depriving each other of that part of married life. And the apostle Paul taught against it. Said, when you get married, you are to have relations only with one another. And you are to continuously carry that on. In, once again, in Hebrews 13, 4, we read, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, now folks, the only reason the Bible writer would say marriage is to be held in honor among all is because some were not holding it in honor. There must have been some twisted views of celibacy, some twisted views of, of not getting married at all. And so the writer says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed meaning sexual intimacy, is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And in this verse, the Lord commands that, he says, the marriage bed is not to be defiled, meaning that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's not to be defiled. You are not permitted to have relations with anyone other than your spouse. And then he says those who do practice sex outside of marriage will come under divine judgment. That's, that's what he means when he says that, that for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's precisely what he's, what he's talking about. Now, I think these are extremely clear statements in scripture. I think they're very precise. The Lord is very, very forthright about the sacredness of sex only within marriage. But yet in spite of how many times God gave this message many, many times throughout the Bible. The Jewish people of Christ's day absolutely missed the point about sexual purity. They they missed it. They missed an important aspect of it. It is the same mistake that many people continue to make today. They interpreted adultery as only a deed, only a physical act, nothing more, nothing less. And so, in Matthew chapter 5... In the context of explaining what true righteousness really is like, Jesus gives the accurate, complete, and full picture and meaning about the law of adultery. Now, as we've been going and working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we have come to a section in which the Lord is opening up to the people what the true commandments are about. He, he takes six laws, six Old Testament laws, and explains to them that here's what the rabbis have taught. This is the traditional view, but I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the complete view. I'm telling you the accurate interpretation. Now, last week, we saw the first of these six commandments, and it was about the law of murder. The Actually, it's the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And we learned that when God gave the law prohibiting murder, he was conveying far more, Than the truth that murder is just killing someone. It's that, but it's more than that. It also includes inner anger and animosity. And now in similar fashion, Jesus moves on to explain the law about adultery. And he's telling us that it also goes deeper, just as the law of murder goes deeper than what you do outwardly. So the law about adultery goes, goes deeper than what happens with your body. It also includes your mind, mental lust, and desire. Now, it's important for us to understand exactly why Why would Jesus take the time in, a, in an important sermon like this to touch on, on these issues? Why would he explain about these laws? Well, once again, let's back up a little bit, and, and I remind you that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, what ties everything together is the unifying theme of this sermon, is that Christ followers are to be different, and they are to be distinct from the world, and especially from religious Hypocrites, And to accomplish this, in order to convey what, what he wants the people to behave like, the Lord needed to explain to us what true righteousness entails. He couldn't just say, be righteous. That's very nebulous. That's very vague. He had to give specifics. It it is about righteousness. In fact, if you look at Matthew 6.33, you'll see the whole sermon really is about righteousness. He says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. But what does he mean by that? How do I seek after righteousness? What does it mean righteousness in God's sight. As I said, you can't just throw that out. You have to get specific. You have to tell people how to walk, how to be how to be specific and tangible and concrete in their daily behavior. And that's what the Lord is doing. It's important to understand that he's doing this because the Jewish people of his day had completely lost sight of true righteousness. They didn't know what it really was. Why? Because their rabbis had not taught them true righteousness. The rabbis had not interpreted and taught them the truth about God's laws. Instead of understanding that righteousness and holiness were matters of the heart, they went beneath the surface. The rabbis viewed righteousness as just a set of mere mechanical outward observances, a a legalistic code to follow. No heart involved, no true repentance. And what they did is they, they knew these laws, but they failed to grasp the spirit of the law, the spirit that says my desire is to obey God in my heart as well as in my outward action. And so righteousness to them was, was just a superficial conformity to a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. And the tragedy of this very mechanical approach to their religion, very legalistic, was that not only did they see, did did they deceive themselves into thinking that they were righteous, but they deceived the common Jewish people who listened to them, who believed that they knew what they were talking about, who followed their instruction. And so the average Jewish, Jewish person thought that he was righteous because his obedience was very surface and very outward, very external. And that's why Jesus in this, in this passage especially unmasks the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He shatters their sense of holiness. And he did this by stating in verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness, he's telling his followers, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to be deeper. It isn't that you have to do more. It's that you have to understand that righteousness goes beneath the surface. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. When nobody else sees, when nobody else catches you, it's a matter of obeying God from the heart when you're alone. That's what he's talking about. So Christ is calling his followers to true righteousness, not that kind of shallow external righteousness that, that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. He wanted his disciples to understand that, that to be part of his kingdom meant, that you follow him as king, your heart is right with him, your inner attitude is right. And so after calling them to obey the, the true meaning of the law of murder, that is to say, resolve your conflicts with others. Get them straightened out so that, that you don't have inner hatred, inner animosity, inner malice towards them, and really obey the law about murder. Now Jesus moves on to explain what it means to really observe the law about murder. Adultery, And like the issue of murder, the law about adultery is most relevant to us, isn't it? Most relevant because there are many people who, like the Pharisees, pride themselves on never having committed the act of adultery, but they're still guilty of it. They're still guilty of adultery because though they may never have committed the deed of adultery, their hearts are filled with adulterous desires that only God knows about. Ours is a very strange age. Ours is an age that actually encourages mental adultery and, and behavior like no other era in the history of mankind. Obviously, lust and, and mental adultery have been around since the fall of man, but there has never been a day like ours in which pornography is so accessible through videos, magazines, and the Internet. Never like our day. Pornography is not simply a problem that non-Christians have. Christians have it too. There are many professing Christians who are obsessed and caught up in this sin. According to a 2003 survey from Internet Filter Review, 47% of Christians admit that pornography is a major problem in their homes. That's about half. Now, folks, we just sang about we want a Christian home and the legacy of a godly home. But this is what reality is. This is what reality is. Family Safe Media reports that 53% of men belonging to the organization Promise Keepers visit porn sites every week. What a bizarre twist. A Promise Keeper makes a promise to be faithful. But according to this survey, and I got this information, by the way, from a recent World Magazine. It is accurate. it it uh, It is what's happening. It may surprise you to know that according to a 2003 issue of Today's Christian Woman, One in six women, including Christians, struggles with pornographic obsession. It's not just men. Now, in light of these startling statistics, and and they are, and I could have given you more, but people tend to get lost in statistics, it would be very wise for us to pay very close attention to what Jesus had to say about the sin of adultery and sexual purity. Because in presenting the righteous standards that God's law speaks of, and we as disciples need to follow. The Lord not only reveals the true and complete meaning of this law of adultery, but here's, here's what's helpful. He also tells us how to honor God by living a sexually pure life. In other words, the Lord gives some victory here. He gives ways to victory. He doesn't just tell us what the problem is. He tells us how to have victory over this problem. And he does it by revealing two key truths about adultery and righteousness. Now, that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first key truth about adultery that Jesus reveals is this. Number one, the traditional view of adultery is inadequate. It doesn't go far enough. It is very inadequate. We begin by looking at verse 27. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, let's let's stop there. The Lord begins to approach the subject of adultery, just like he did the law of murder. When he says, you have heard that it was said, he's really not quoting the Old Testament. What he is saying is, he's saying this, you have heard that the rabbis said this. You have heard that your ancient teachers said this, and this is what you're taught today. You have heard that this is the common rabbinical interpretation of this commandment. We know that's what he means because the very next phrase said, but I say to you, he would not be saying the Old Testament said this, but I'm telling you the truth. That, that would be a contradiction. So he's talking about the rabbis. Once again, as with the law prohibiting murder, what we see by this is the ancient rabbis had a very narrow definition of this particular sin. Very narrow. They defined it in a very, very strict way. Their attitude was, look, avoid the physical act of adultery and you're fine. You're being obedient to God. That's what he, that's what he wants. As long as you don't engage in sexual intimacy with anyone other than your spouse, then you're not guilty of breaking this commandment. That was their interpretation. That was their view. And in all fairness to the ancient rabbis, as well as the scribes and the Pharisees of Christ's day, this interpretation of adultery wasn't completely wrong. Wasn't completely wrong. The Bible does forbid the outward act of adultery, and we don't want to minimize that. It certainly condemns it. In fact, it was such a serious sin under the Mosaic law that the punishment for this was death, execution, execution, Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. So so this was a very, very serious offense. That's why in the New Testament, the woman caught in the act of adultery, they wanted to pick up stones and kill her. And Jesus in mercy stepped in. But according to the law, that was the punishment. So the scribes and, and Pharisees, we have to say, didn't completely misunderstand the law involving adultery but the problem is and this is a big problem in spite of that they were guilty they were not off the hook these were not well-meaning men who just oops forgot something they were they were guilty of misinterpreting this law and intentionally doing it because they purposely ignored the deeper meaning of adultery. They very well knew, and don't miss this point, they very well knew that God wasn't interested only in the mere outward physical act of adultery, but that sexual purity in the mind, in the heart, in the thought life was what he was after too. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say, and I'm I'm saying it with dogmatism, that they very well knew that it wasn't just about the physical act why do i say that because just a few commandments down from the 7th commandment is another commandment the 10th which says that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife coveting is about inner desire it's not about outward action it's about inner lust in other words the pharisees the scribes the ancient rabbis and many today they conveniently chose to ignore that aspect of adultery conveniently purposely that inner coveting part that they very well knew they were guilty of. That's why they chose to ignore it. They knew they were guilty of it, and they deliberately chose to define adultery in terms that they were not guilty of. See, what they did is they shaped their theology to fit their lifestyle, not the other way around. Many still do that today. They shaped their theology to fit their lifestyle. They're involved in immorality, so they say, you know what, immorality is fine. And that's what they were doing. I think John Stott really nails... the the sin of their religious leaders when he said this, they gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. You know why? Because they thought they were fine. This was their self-righteousness. And the proof that God always intended, always intended the meaning of adultery to include inner lust as well as outward action was that Jesus affirmed that this was the true interpretation of this law, notice verse 28. But I say to you, in, in, in other words, in contrast with what you've been taught, I'm telling you what it always has meant. When in God's heart and mind, this is the true interpretation. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now remember back in verse 17, when Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. Remember when he said that he's explaining that he didn't come to give anything new he just came to fulfill what the old testament had already taught and that's that's what he's saying here the law about adultery has always been around i'm just telling you saying what what it's what it's always taught even though people misunderstood it this isn't a new and novel teaching just confirming what what should have been known by everyone that the true and full and accurate meaning of thou shalt not commit adultery extends to the inner attitude of mental lust as well as the outward deed of sexual relations. Now, this is extremely important for us to understand. And I think it's easy for us to jump to conclusions and misunderstand what Jesus meant. So, so let's back up a little bit. And let's, before we move on, why don't we look here at, first of all, what he did not mean. Let's eliminate some things and say he didn't mean this. Because I, as I said, I think it's very easy to, to jump the gun and misunderstand. The Lord didn't mean, first of all, that it's wrong for a man to admire the attractiveness of a woman. He wasn't teaching that at all. God made women to look good. And, and uh, they're to look good to men. And it's part of a man's humanity to notice female Beauty. In fact, we might think it a little... We, in fact, we, not we might, we do think it a little bizarre and something wrong with a man who doesn't notice feminine beauty. So that's, that's not what he's talking about here. However, noticing a woman's attractiveness is not the same thing as lusting after her. There is a difference. Every man knows that difference. And certainly uh, Job in the Old Testament knew it because he said in Job 31, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a virgin. Job understood. Job said, I made an agreement. I've got a problem in this area. I know what a lustful look is. So I've made a pact with my eyes not to look that way. I'll tell you who illustrates this. King David, in a negative way, illustrates this because his sordid incident with Bathsheba illustrates that there is a distinction between noticing and lustfully looking. When when he first noticed Bathsheba bathing on her roof, he wasn't at fault it wasn't a fault how could he not notice her the bible says she was a very beautiful woman but instead of turning what he should have done instead of turning away from her and putting that mental image out of his mind he entertained it he entertained it and he committed adultery with her first in his mind and then with his body and so we want to be clear that looking is not the same thing as lusting
0: It's clear that David went too far, and he crossed the line, according to Jesus' explanation of adultery, a lot closer to the start of that story than to the end of it. When his thoughts crossed from, wow, she's gorgeous, to, hmm, wouldn't it be nice if... Well, You can fill in the rest of that sentence. I'm sure you know what I mean. I'm glad you could be here today as Pastor Steve Kreloff guides us in this study of the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Find out more at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Today's broadcast and all of our previous ones are free to stream or download at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Click the message archive link and you can search for any date you'd like to listen to. That's versebyverseradio.org. If you want to listen to Pastor Steve's entire message with no announcements, we offer free CDs of each sermon. Get yours by calling Lakeside at the number I just gave you, 727-441-1714. Ask for message 4129, Adultery and Mental Lust. If you're calling outside of business hours, please just leave your name and a daytime phone number, and we'll get back to you. I'm Jerry Peterson. On our next verse-by-verse, Pastor Steve will be sharing some facts about Jesus' view of adultery that we need to know. Two in particular are that the traditional view of adultery is inadequate. And adultery is not something we can take lightly. Jesus prescribes radical surgery. Please join us as Pastor Steve clears up some common but dangerous misconceptions. We're here to give you strength between...